Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Brian Corbett. Brian is the president and CEO of the Managed Funds Association, which represents the global alternative asset management industry. With offices in Washington, D.C., New York, Brussels, and London, MFA has over 170 members, including hedge funds, credit funds, and crossover funds that collectively manage over $3 trillion in AUM. Brian joined the MFA in January 2020 after spending 11 years of private equity at the Carlyle Group. Before Carlyle, Brian worked on Capitol Hill for the U.S. Treasury Department and as a special assistant to President George W. Bush. If you want to know where the puck is going in the industry, this is the interview. Brian's unique experience as a private equity lawyer with Capitol Hill experience puts him in the pole position. We talk about the energy on Capitol Hill and how it differs from his time in private equity. He shares the current initiatives of the MFA, how to play offense with communication, and what should managers be doing today and planning for tomorrow in this crucial time of change. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Corbett. Brian, thanks for joining us. You have a really interesting background. Can you tell me how it all started? Sure. So after graduating from college, I moved to D.C. where I went to law school and after law school, followed the traditional lawyer track of working for a judge and then going to work for a big law firm here in D.C. And after a few years of that, I was doing private market M&A deals. Everyone was a securities lawyer at that point. It was right after the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed. So it was a busy time. I decided I didn't come to Washington to be a corporate lawyer. I wanted to work in government. So I took a bit of a flyer and went up and worked on Capitol Hill, where I was counsel to the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, a gentleman named Richard Shelby from Alabama. I worked for Shelby for a couple of years and then moved over to the Treasury Department, where I was the chief of staff to the deputy secretary of Treasury, and then from Treasury went to work in the White House. So I worked for President Bush as one of his senior economic aides from 2006 to 2008. So I was there for the early days of the financial crisis, watching as everything picked up steam, as we were all trying to figure out what is a mortgage-backed security, what does CDO squared mean, and trying to translate all of that. 
Eventually, I left the White House and went to the Carlisle Group, where I was working on the private equity team as part of a broader internal group called the One Carlisle Global Investment Team. Then I came to MFA. So I've been at MFA for just over three years, and it's been a great run. How did that come to be going from a law firm and moving over onto Capitol Hill? I'd love to hear about how that transpired. It actually took a lot longer than I expected. When you're in Washington, you figure out that when you're in government, you operate in your own ecosystem. And being a lawyer at a law firm, I had to figure out a way to raise my profile and penetrate that other ecosystem on Capitol Hill that I wasn't a part of. It wound up that I got my first job on Capitol Hill through someone that I was playing basketball with in a men's basketball league. He knew of someone who knew someone who was leaving an office and hooked me up with a job interview. And eventually that led me to working for Chairman Shelby. So it was a little bit of hustle, a little bit of luck, and certainly some patience as I worked through the process. What was it like having an exchange with the president of the United States and him asking you what you thought? It's definitely nerve wracking, but I will tell you, once you have that conversation, you're really not nervous again talking to any individual. I would oftentimes get calls from President Bush at night. I remember one time we were working on an issue and I got a call when I was with my wife and at the time young daughter, we were in the grocery store and the president was fielding a call from a couple of governors and wanted some input and just picked up the phone and called. And that's the way President Bush was. He was very curious, very inquisitive, and did his homework around a lot of these issues. And it was just a true honor to work with him and the entire team in the Bush White House. And you were in the White House during the financial crisis. What was that like? I was there as we were leading up to it. So I left the White House the week before Bear Stearns was taken over by J.P. Morgan. I was there in 06 and certainly the summer of 07 when we began to realize the significance of the problem. People may remember in August 07, that's when the Fed first moved rates and Chairman Bernanke began to talk a lot more about the crisis. Up until that point, there wasn't a great feel for what was happening. It obviously accelerated greatly throughout 08. But it was a time of really trying to learn what was happening in the industry, talk to a lot of industry participants, understand the different instruments that were at play, and begin to figure out how we were going to respond to it. The early policy proposals were focused a lot on the mortgage markets and helping homeowners, and then it quickly moved to a bank capital market solution. And then so making the move to Carlisle, how did that come to be? So I had been in the White House for a couple of years. I had my second child, and it was just getting to be that time where when you're in the White House, you either stay through the end of the administration or you need to make it known that you're going to transition because they need to plan for the last year and make sure they have resources in place. And also with the financial crisis gaining steam, we needed to make sure that the finance side of the White House had the right people in place. So I was talking to the the president, his team about it, and ultimately decided to make the move. In my role in government, I just got to know a lot of different financial services firms, and I developed a lot of respect and admiration for Carlisle, the work of David Rubenstein, Dan Daniello, and Bill Conway to build Carlisle. At that point, it was pre-IPO. It was a really innovative, creative company. It was based in Washington, D.C. as well, which means I didn't have to uproot my young family and move. And private equity was in the early stages where it was investing in lots of different 
products, different companies, and you could see the beginning of an industry that was going to take off. And how long were you at Carlisle? I was there 12 years and I really had two different roles. I was hired to help build out Carlisle's government affairs team. And the idea was to have some internal resources that could work with the investment teams to deal with public policy issues around our portfolio. And I also wound up dealing with a lot of issues that affect the, the GP, SEC regulation, tax issues. And then after about four years, I moved into a role working most closely with our corporate private equity team. It was an internal resource we built. And the idea was that I would have a team focused on how we leverage Carlisle's network, relationships, intellectual capital around the world. So when we made an investment, we were using different relationships, our investment teams in Asia to help the investment team in the U.S. with the deal. It really became uh, core to what we did. Uh, we really talked to management teams about investing into a large global network that could really help drive your revenue and be a good partner for you. So working at a company like Carlisle coming from government, is that more stressful or less stressful? remember my first week at Carlisle sitting there and the phone just didn't ring. And I was like, okay, something's going wrong here. Because when you work in government, you're constantly jumping from one issue, one crisis to another, and everyone's calling you for information. When you flip to the outside and you move into the private sector, you quickly realize that you've got to generate the flow. You've got to generate the relationships and figure out a way to make yourself valuable to the investment teams so that they pull you into their deal. So it wasn't so much intimidating as there was definitely a learning curve in figuring out how to translate what I did in the government to Carlisle and to supporting our investment teams. So it's fair to say that the exit strategy of private equity works at a much slower cadence than the exit strategy of what's burning in the White House? Oh, it definitely does. <laughs> Yeah, that daily flow of crises in government, particularly in the White House, is almost overwhelming. I was fortunate to have a lot of good colleagues and we worked very well together, but you are jumping from one issue to another every day. And that's one of the skills you take away from government is being able to multitask, to deal with different constituencies, to see issues from different angles and to be able to connect dots. What made you decide to leave Carlisle? I had been there 12 years. It was a terrific firm, learned a lot, really enjoyed it. But the chance to go become the CEO of an organization and one that blended my background in public policy with my background in alternative asset management was really a unique chance. And I was really ready to take the leap and become a CEO. And I thought it was the next step and a good challenge for me as my career was evolving. Feels like MFA is a capstone of your path forward, so to speak. Yeah, it certainly blended the two interests and has been, a, I think, a pretty good fit for me. What's the purpose of the organization? MFA's mission is to advance the ability of alternative asset managers to raise capital, invest it, and generate returns for their allocators and beneficiaries. So our job in MFA is to advocate on behalf of the industry in the U.S. and London and Europe, as well as in other capitals around the world, where we're trying to shape the rules and regulations under which alternative asset managers operate. We are active on issues in the U.S. at the federal level, state level, very involved on tax, securities, 
and a whole host of issues that impact managers and the regulatory environment is just getting much more complicated. In addition, we have a team that focuses on conferences and events for the industry. So we're a significant convener where we like to bring together managers, allocators, and other participants. And we see ourselves as championing the ecosystem of alternative asset managers. And how do you do that? So we have a terrific team here. We are 40-ish individuals around the world. We have lawyers, government affairs, communications, research teams. We have a team dedicated to our events and conferences. So we've built an infrastructure and a team that is very curious, wants to learn about the industry, and is very connected with the managers that we serve. So there is a regular flow of information, constant conversations about what's happening in the industry. And we make a real effort to be current and thoughtful about what matters for the industry. So we prioritize quite a bit in terms of what we're focused on. And what are you focused on today? At a big picture, it is a very challenging time for alternative asset managers. We are in an environment where the regulatory dials are moving in one direction and just making it much more expensive, more challenging to be a manager and to run a fund of scale. And I would say there are really two major categories of issues. And you could think of it as defining a couple of lines around the industry. One line is maintaining the difference between a private fund and a retail fund or a mutual fund. And I think we've seen a trend at the SEC to try and treat private funds more like mutual funds. The other line that we're focused on is between bank and non-bank. And you're seeing an increasing focus among policymakers where they're talking about non-bank financial intermediation, the role of direct lending, private credit, the role of leverage in the financial system, and how policymakers should respond to that. So we are, as an organization, acutely focused on preserving the bank-non-bank line and making sure that policymakers don't take a bank-like approach for investment managers. And has that been a dramatic change since your arrival? Both lines have been challenged in the last three years. I'd say on the security side with the Biden administration, with Chairman Gensler's tenure at the SEC, we've seen a rash of rulemakings, over 20 that are targeting investment advisors. On the non-bank side, in the past six to nine months post-Silicon Valley bank failure, there has been an increasing focus on the role of non-banks. You would think that a bank failure would draw all of the attention to our banking regime and capital requirements. And yes, that's happening. But what's also happening is that many banks and regulators are starting to point fingers at non-bank firms and point to them as sort of the next area of risk in the system. That's something that we are very focused on pushing back. And it's not just in the U.S. where you see this pressure on non-banks. You see it in Europe with the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Financial Stability Board, a whole alphabet soup of regulators that are looking at non-bank activities and trying to figure out how does it fit into the current rubric of regulation. We believe very strongly, and we've got data to support it, that private funds don't pose systemic risk, right? We don't have depositors. There's no U.S. backing. We have investors who have a risk tolerance. 
our members, their money's locked up for a period of time. They can't redeem it every day. There's no daily liquidity. And also the contagion risk is low. Private funds are structured in a way where losses are borne by the investors in that fund and don't ripple across the financial system the way you see with a bank failure. So some very clear policy differences that we are very focused on articulating to both policymakers as well as the public at large. You have a global footprint. How do you manage where you want to focus? You've got stuff going on in Europe. Can you tell us about where MFA has focused historically and then think about what your mission is going forward before we dig into all the private fund rules? We were founded in Washington, D.C., and over time opened an office in New York. In the past year and a half, we expanded our footprint into Brussels as well as into the U.K. And these geographic expansions are being driven by the growth of capital flows. Our managers are large and global. We have 175 managers. Many, if not most of them, have offices in international capitals. So we want to be present where our members are both investing as well as where they're raising money. And some of the regulations in Europe are focused on the ability to access capital in Europe. And that's an area we've been very focused. So there are a lot of issues. Uh, We work closely with our membership to consult and to identify those issues that really matter for them. Not every issue can be the subject of a full-scale advocacy campaign. You just don't have enough firepower to do that. So we really work closely with our members to prioritize and then deploy a strategy that involves our legal capabilities, our government affairs, how we talk to policymakers, as well as communications and research. And why Brussels? When we opened in Brussels, it was around the time that Brexit was being discussed, but they were going through a major review of a piece of legislation called AIFMD. It's the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive. That legislation sets the rules of the road by which private fund managers can raise money across Europe, as well as the ability of managers in Europe to delegate some of the day-to-day investment decision-making and activity out of Europe into a different geography. So it was a really important piece of legislation that we needed to move quickly to engage on and address. How about in the U.S.? What's the current playbook with all that's going on there? When I took the job, the change in administration created a lot more regulatory pressure on our industry. But when the regulatory pressure comes, you'd think you're playing defense and you're trying to stop things from happening and trying to prevent legislation or new rules from going into effect. It's true you're doing that, but the way you actually play defense in our industry is by going much more aggressively on offense. You need to get out there more and talk to policymakers. You need to speak clearly about the value your industry provides to markets, to allocators, and you need to support that with research and well-written documents that are persuasive to policymakers and to the media and public at large. So that's something we've really been focused on. But the shift to a defensive posture in the Biden administration has caused us as an industry group to be much more proactive and much more public about our industry and the value that our industry provides to allocators and their pension foundation and endowment clients. I want to dig in on this private funds rule. Tell me where you're at on this. The private funds rule is the major rulemaking by the SEC that 
for the first time, puts the SEC in the middle of negotiations between a GP and an LP. This is an area that Congress legislated on many years ago. Congress decided to treat retail products in a way that's different than private funds. A private fund industry has grown up where sophisticated parties negotiate terms, conditions, preferences, and an allocator will make an investment. The SEC is looking to change that with this rule and really inject the SEC in the middle of that and begin to prohibit certain terms and conditions by making it very onerous through disclosure requirements. And we are, as an organization, really trying to keep that line between retail and private funds. We don't think the SEC should take an approach meant for retail and apply it to private funds. So we are suing the SEC because we believe they've exceeded the statutory authority by trying to impose this new regulatory regime on alternative asset managers. The rule itself is incredibly broad. It's over 600 pages. And in our view, it's completely unworkable. It's actually going to very significantly undermine competition in the industry. It will make it more expensive for managers to operate. It'll make it harder for institutional investors to get access to funds. They'll have less choice. And we also don't think the SEC did an adequate cost-benefit analysis to justify this rule. There was no major market event pushing them to do this. They just created this monstrous rule and posed it on the industry without justifying why it's necessary. Do you have any thoughts on why this came to be? It's hard to divine some of Chairman Gensler's motivations in this industry, but the one thing he's talked about is there are large funds in the market and they're raising capital from the pension funds. He has tried to see through the pension funds and create this narrative where it's the fund manager on one side and the end beneficiary, the school teacher, the fireman, the policeman on the other side, as if it's a retail product. So he has tried to ignore the fact that when a pension fund makes an investment, they've got a large internal team. They've got a CIO staff. They have outside legal, audit, consulting relationships. When you're making a multi-hundred million dollar investment, it's not the same as mom and pop buying the share of a mutual fund. And so we think that false narrative is something the SEC has been trying to drive, and it's just not true. There are large, sophisticated parties on both sides of this deal. And that's at root is what our lawsuit's focused on, is trying to keep that focus on the difference between the different types of products in the market. With that approach, what does the rule say about the negotiation of fund terms? The focus on preferences has been one of the major areas where it's clear that the SEC in their proposed rule, they prohibited preferences. In the final rule, they basically said, you have to disclose your preferences and essentially offer it to everybody. It doesn't really become a preference anymore if everybody can participate at those terms. What you're going to have is a race to the bottom as firms offer potentially the same terms to everyone. I think the SEC underappreciated is that a lot of the LP community doesn't really like this rule as it's come out. And you've started to see some of the LPs push back a bit because LPs work a long time to develop relationships with managers, to get access to new launches, and to get preferred terms if they take risk with a new emerging manager. 
that dynamic is going to change dramatically with this new rule. As someone who comes in early at scale in a new launch, they may not be able to keep the preferred terms that they're used to. And that, we think, is really going to deter both capital allocation to small and emerging managers and then result in fewer of those funds in the market. And that's not a great outcome for us. So let's say I have an MFN on fees. Does that mean everybody else can come in and get the same fee? You'll need to disclose to all of the other investors the MFN. They can begin to object and throw you into a process where you might need to renegotiate that MFN or offer it to everybody. That is what we think becomes impractical for funds and for allocators. People are focused on this from the fund perspective, but what we have heard is that a lot of allocators want their preferences. They want those MFNs and they've earned them over years by being loyal investors in a fund and coming in early and taking risk. Can you speak about the impact on emerging managers where a lot of these preferred terms are being negotiated? One of the areas we focused our discussion with the SEC is around the impact of this rule on small and medium managers, particularly those that are female and diverse owned. The SEC has acknowledged that their rule is going to have a significant cost on smaller managers. And they actually suggested that managers should remain small and avoid tripping the $150 million threshold that requires registration with the SEC. So rather than trying to fix the regulatory regime, the SEC has advised smaller managers to stay small so they don't have to deal with all the regulation. And it just seems completely backward to us that the leading capital markets regulator is encouraging firms to stay small. I mean, if you run the numbers, I think it's really hard to be competitive at $150 million. Yes. And we're hearing lots of different estimates from the consultants and other managers now as they're looking to launch about what does it take to launch a firm in this environment with all of these regulations coming online. And it's multiples of the 150. I think the SEC has severely underestimated the negative impact on competition. The big are going to get bigger as a result of this. We're talking about one rule here of 20 that is targeting our industry. So by the time a manager implements this private fund rule, as well as the new cyber requirements, the form PF, the ESG rule, the new custody rule, the new predictive analytics rule focused on the use of technology. I mean, there's a litany of these things that any one of them is going to be a significant implementation burden, let alone 20 plus at one time. The one area where we're we're focused next is not only are we dealing with all of these individual rules, but we're trying to focus a conversation more broadly on the aggregate cost of all of these rules, on the aggregate impact and how they're all going to be implemented together. So this idea of interconnectedness, aggregate cost is a concept that we think policymakers should be thinking more about. There hasn't been an effort to look at all of these together. The SEC has been very strategic in trying to move one rule at a time, as opposed to doing them collectively in a way that would allow for a more holistic analysis. And we think that's a real weak spot because it's easy to say, oh, well, this one rule won't be that bad. But when you add them all up, how that affects a smaller, medium-sized fund, how that affects the new emerging manager, it becomes much more obvious what the negative impact is of what the SEC is doing. What's the next hand to be played here? 
the private fund rule is final. We, along with five other trade associations, are coordinating and we jointly filed a lawsuit in Texas. We are hopeful that the court will soon begin the process of hearing the case and that sometime next year, hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll hear a decision on it. But in the meantime, while we're all waiting for the litigation to play out, managers and allocators need to begin to comply with this rule. They need to begin to move forward and thinking about how they will implement it. And that's going to be a challenge. If I'm a manager and these rules are out, what should I be thinking about doing right now? I think there are two main things that managers are doing right now. First, they are talking to their allocators and LPs about the rule change. Some LPs are aware of what's happening, others aren't. And it's really important for managers to have that level of transparency, start to have those discussions with their LPs about some of the changes that could come online in the next year, year and a half. The other course of action is to begin to think internally and in consultation with your outside advisors about an implementation program. The industry needs to begin thinking about implementation and taking steps to move forward as if this rule might go final. And that includes talking to your fund admins, your law firms, your accounting firms about the different requirements and what it will mean for you from both a resourcing and implementation protocol perspective. The current final rule grandfathers in most existing agreements. So what we're talking about is new capital coming into funds. So I think firms are going to begin to think prospectively about how they change their LPAs, What are some of the processes they have in place for sharing information with LPs? There's some concern that you're going to move to a reg FD disclosure regime in private funds, where rather than a big LP being able to pick up the phone and call a CIO and say, hey, I'm meeting with my board in a couple of days. I had a couple of questions. Those calls aren't going to get returned anymore necessarily. Now there's going to be potentially a quarterly call for all allocators where there's an information dump. That is something that firms are going to begin to think through. So there's a whole host of issues like this that managers are going to begin to think about. We're now working a lot with our managers on implementation, bringing them together to talk about different practices and how the industry can begin to move forward in a really thoughtful way to address this rule if the litigation ultimately is not successful. What about the impact on the capital? You have organizations like Taft-Hartley, you have ERISA plans, you've got a Dutch pension plan. What are your thoughts on that? I think capital will still find a way to flow to managers. Our industry is very innovative, very creative. People will find a way to continue to attract capital and allocators still want to be in these funds. So I think both sides have an incentive to figure out a way to jury rig around it, to implement it. And that process is going to play out over the next year as we move forward. Specifically, Taft-Hartley, all the different requirements that allocators have, you're raising a really good question. And I think it remains to be seen if managers who today have some flexibility to tailor arrangements based on LP's preferences can continue to do that. And you may see situations where allocators can't get access to a fund because the GP can no longer provide that condition in a side letter or can no longer offer a certain term that that LP needs because they can't offer it to everybody. 
And that's going to be a real challenge. I'd love to talk a little bit more about what's going on abroad. I mean, you've got UK short selling. There's a bunch of initiatives you guys are doing. I'd love to hear more about that as well. We have a major focus in the US and our hands full with Chairman Gensler, but the industry continues to grow, continues to globalize. And post-Brexit, we've seen a real opportunity to engage with the UK government on a number of issues. The one that we have been focused on most in the past year plus has been around short sell restrictions. So in the US, the short selling is disclosed in aggregate by issuer. There's no individual manager disclosure. And in the SEC's proposed rule on short selling, they preserve that treatment. Internationally, it's different. Today, both in the UK and in the EU, disclosure is by individual manager position based on certain thresholds. However, the UK is changing that position. We're hopeful that in six months they will introduce a new regime, and they've signaled this, that is much more consistent with the US's position of disclosing short sale and aggregate by issuer. And this is a really important change that will bring more capital into the UK markets, create more liquidity. And it's an issue that MFA worked on for over a year and a half with UK policymakers. And we're really excited to see this government adopted and move forward with it. All of what you're discussing with these regulations are common items for our audience, the COOs, CFOs, GCs, et cetera. With your member funds, how have you seen the front office investment staff focus on these regulations? Our members are very sophisticated and we deal with the larger global managers who have generally a billion plus in AUM and infrastructure. So rarely are they surprised by something. Also, managers are dealing with a lot. Someone in the CFO seat at a fund is dealing with issues all day long. They oftentimes don't have the bandwidth to think about how these regulatory regimes are going to affect both their capital raising as well as their capital deployment and investment strategies. They'll often have a GC and a CCO that's focused on some of the compliance issues, but oftentimes the regulatory regime doesn't make its way into the larger firm strategy discussions. And that's something where I think the current environment is beginning to elevate. It is beginning to penetrate those front offices as people are realizing that their business models through some of these rules could become obsolete and could become prohibitively expensive where they can no longer operate certain strategies. One of the key roles that we play for the industry is that center point where we can provide information on what's coming. We can provide information on how to implement rules. We can provide information on what peers are doing in the market. And we really pride ourselves on being that valuable partner to the industry. And all firms are different. And what's interesting about these rules is if you're a long short fund, there's some rules that apply. If you're a macro or a quant, there's different rules that apply. Like, and then there are certain rules that apply no matter what your strategy is. It really is a potpourri of regulatory challenges for the industry. And some strategies are going to bear it worse than others. And where does VC fit into this whole equation? So VC is affected by many of these rules. While some venture capital firms were carved out under Dodd and Frank, some of these rules apply regardless of that carve out. Many VC funds have gotten to a size or they have a sidecar liquid fund 
where they trigger these registration requirements, and then all of these rules apply to them. The Venture Capital Association was one of the associations that sued the SEC with MFA. So they're directly affected by a lot of these rules, if not all of them. What about the implications, what you're seeing in the market, you're seeing the evolution of private credit, which is one thing, and accreditation standards being lowered, and now you're seeing alts go mainstream. Do you guys think about that at all? There are definitely still income thresholds and criteria that investors have to meet. Alts haven't gone to mom and pop. I think a lot of investment managers are thinking about the high net worth market, how to create some new products and structures that allows them to access high net worth accredited investors more holistically and move and expand their capital base beyond traditional pension funds. And I think that creativity in the industry and the innovation is going to continue. But the hallmarks of the vehicles that investors use and those products continue to have traditional private market redemption rights, gates, locked up funds that are basically separate from the other funds within a multi-strat or a large alternative asset manager. So we think while the industry grows and innovates, the key underlying differences that distinguish private funds from banks and other daily redemption products remains in place. And that's important to focus on. So Brian, we have two closing questions for people. One is, what is the one book or resource that you commonly refer to people? There are a couple of books floating around my head, but what I have to recommend is that your listeners, if they are not members of MFA, they need to join. We are an industry-wide resource for fund managers that are dealing with all of these issues that have a lot of other issues on their plate and need an organization that's thinking about them and thinking about the growth and evolution of alternative investment managers for the next five to 10 years. And that's what we do. And I feel strongly that we are a really terrific resource for the industry. The second question I have is, what advice would you give to an emerging manager? Certainly emerging managers are busy raising capital, starting to deploy it and building their infrastructure. But I would encourage them to keep one eye on the road ahead and some of these regulatory threats that could impact the business they're trying to build. And that's certainly an area where MFA can be a good partner and resource. Well, Brian, this has been a wide ranging conversation. Love hearing about what you guys are doing in Washington and look forward to following along. Great. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the opportunity. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.